You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. We are in a series called Circles, and we're going to talk about what it means to circle up today. And so if you'll help me out, take out of your program your outline. You've got a little uh, fill-in-the-blanks on there. If you brought your booklet with you, they're already filled in. If you've been a part of the circle and enjoying that, and uh, it's been awesome. This week I, uh, I went to the doctor, and uh, when you go to the doctor, you know you got to walk up and you got to pay your copay, right? And so uh, you don't love doing that. And so when I walked up to pay my copay, I was kind of a little grumpy because I knew what I have to pay. And I walked up to pay my copay, and the lady sitting there to take my card and my my stuff. She says, hi, Pastor Dave. I got to let you know, my circle is amazing. (laughs) Tell you, it changed my whole day. Like, it just changed everything. So I hope your experience is like hers because it does. There's just something about a circle that changes everything. And we've been watching as God reveals through Jesus, God reveals our identity, that you and I are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. And then God walks us into a season of formation where you and I are tried and we're tested and we're tempted. And there are times that we fall flat on our face and we wonder if God's given up on us. And where do we go from here? And we're tempted to think that what we've done is who we are. And so our identity gets mixed in with our formation. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to call you back to identity. And then he walks us from seasons of formation into community. And isn't it true that so often our season of formation drives us to community? Because in our culture, we don't like being together. We're kind of told to diversify and to divide and be self-sufficient and be independent. We are, after all, the most independent nation in the world. And so we're taught to survive on our own and live inside our heads. And if you live inside your head too long, you start getting going a little bit crazy. You need the voices of other people in your life. If you start being independent too long, you become self-sufficient for a while. But then a formative experience comes along. And so often formative experiences drive us to community because we really realize we were not designed to live life just on our own. We're designed to be with other people. This uh, time of year here in Elk Grove, California, we have a major migration of the sandhill cranes. And I used to laugh at people who would watch birds like, <laughs> you, you watch birds. I just didn't think that was very cool. And uh, then I moved up here and I started going down the River Delta and I thought it was really fun to photograph birds that are coming in. So I'm going to show you a photo here that's going to come up on the screen. And, and you'll notice that these sandal cranes come in. And we got these amazing sunsets here in Elk Grove and they're coming in like that. But what I've noticed in watching a lot of sandal cranes come in and other birds come in, they don't come in alone. They never fly in to nest at night among the the ponds and the reeds. They don't ever come in alone. They always come in 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 pairs or in a little bit of a flock like you see right here. Go to the next slide. Here's uh, two of them just standing down the water. There is a uh, Canadian goose right there, but what you don't see off camera is there's like five more Canadian geese right next to that one. So even the goose is not by itself. It's with its gaggle, and that's what you call a bunch of geese together if you were unfamiliar with uh, bird terminology. But right in the middle, we've got sandhill cranes, and there are these massive big birds, and they migrate. They fly thousands of miles, and they go all over the world, but they, for some reason, love the delta right here in our area. And then go to the next slide. Uh, This one was a bunch of geese coming in, and they're about to nest at night. And again, you just see that they're coming in together. And what I like about this picture is just the way God orchestrated it, is that you got the geese coming down, you got Mount Diablo in the background, 
angling down. You've got the plants coming down. It's kind of just a cool shot. But God just did that. And I love uh, the art of taking photography. And I like watching what the birds do here. And I just, I never knew. I never knew that, you know, the birds were always doing this. And maybe you didn't either. Maybe you're caught up in your life and you're caught up in your, uh, ex- your circumstances. And you just don't know that all the time around us, God is at work, even in nature. And nature reveals the glory of God. You look at that and you go, hmm, there's something to that. There's something to the fact that these birds flock together and that we are designed not to just be independent and we think we're the top of the food chain, but the reality is a lot of times we act like we're independent of the food chain. We think that we're supposed to just be on our own and give it, get it all together and have it all together. And God says, no, you need to be with other people around you. There are dangers when our identity gets attached to our community. I want to highlight a couple of those because some people, you are more attached to your community than you're attached to your Lord. For some of you, you are more loyal to your friends than you are to Jesus Christ. For some of you, you will make your decisions based on the corporate impression of your friends than you will the word of God. And sometimes we have some dangers in community because when we begin to attach our identity to who we're with and that overrides who God says we are, we suddenly begin to get on very shaky ground. Why? Because community will change. Things will change. Friends will stay. Friends will move. And and for sometimes we all of a sudden realize that our identity gets attached to our community. For example, some of you are at this church and maybe in your past experience, you were at a different church. And maybe you left that church because your community at that church changed. The church changed something on you. The church did away with the ministry that you were really attached to. And you felt like, who stole my church from me? You said, I gotta go find a new church. So what did you do? You were actually more attached to your community. Your identity was your community. Your identity wasn't necessarily simply being a child of God who finds community around them. So we have danger that sometimes you and I can also have the danger of adapting. You can become like a chameleon. With your Christian friends, you're very Christian. With your non-Christian friends, you're very non-Christian. They might not even know that you're a Christian because you just adapt to whatever community you kind of land in, you kind of fly into. You land there and you're like, okay, I'm just going to act like everybody else. And so you're like a chameleon and you're not quite sure exactly who you are in your identity. And sometimes when we do that, God corrects us back to identity. That he sees us changing in different circles but he calls us back to say, this is who I say you really are. You keep trying to get in with all those different groups, but this is who I've called you to be, and you're never going to be content until you just jump in and uh, and own who I say you are. That's where you're going to have the most significance. You have the most satisfaction, the most security in your life is who I say that you are. And the danger is, that if you and I don't circle up, we become independent. We become like a bird just flying on its own. We're easy pickings. If you get sick, you don't have other birds around to hide among or to help with. You're easy pickings for the predators. If you're like a, you know, a wildebeest and you're like, I just don't really like the whole herd mentality. I don't want to go to, you know, some people are like, I don't want to go to a big church. I'm like, actually, there's some pretty good safety in a bigger church. And like a bigger church that gets smaller in circles is a very significantly safe place to be. But some people are like, oh, I just want to go it on my own. And then you're isolated 
and you've fallen away from fellowship with others and no one's quickening you to walk and pursue after Jesus and pretty soon you become easy pickings for the lions because you're limping a little bit and life makes you limp and as you're walking along you've gotten away from the herd and that's what we see in the world of nature that the predator seeks out those who are weak and wounded and limping and independent and God calls us to circle up. He calls us to be together. And this is exemplified by Jesus. So Jesus had his identity spoken at his baptism. He goes 40 days into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil in every way a person can be tempted, yet was without sin. And now he comes back. All right, so I've gone through this great formative experience. Now I'm coming back. What's the first thing I need to do as the son of God, as God incarnate, God become flesh, what's the first thing I need to do? The first thing he does when he comes back from formation is he chooses his friends. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 1. Andy Stanley, uh, who's a pastor, says this, that your friends determine the direction and the quality of your life. And I want you to grab a hold of that statement, because this is important. When you and I choose friends, your friends determine the direction of your life and the quality of your life. You're like, the quality of my life isn't that great. Maybe it's because of your friends. If you say the direction of my life hasn't gone the best direction, maybe it's because of who you're hanging with. Maybe your herd or your flock is not the best. They're determining the direction and quality, and you're getting carried along, and that may not be where you need to be. And it's very important that we choose good friends. So Jesus comes back. In Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, he says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them and he left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So right away, Jesus has four friends he is called to follow, to do life together with him. He goes on in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, this is, by the way, Matthew, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Let me just make a quick note there. You say you read this and you're like, okay, that's cool. Levi, I got name Matthew, follow Jesus. That's great. But what you need to realize is his name is Levi, which means he's not supposed to be a tax collector. He's supposed to be a pastor. He's supposed to be a priest. So here's a guy who sold out his real life calling and his heritage calling and he now has rejected the Jewish people and he is collecting taxes on behalf of Rome, the enemy, the occupying nation. So here's a, a deserter of the culture, a, a rejecter of the Jewish heritage who as a Jewish person is now collecting taxes and giving them to a foreign nation. This is not a popular guy. But Jesus comes up and picks him. Goes on, he followed him. Mark chapter three, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boandrus, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, right, that's Levi. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So right away, you see Jesus coming out of this wilderness experience, out of this formative experience. The first thing he does, he calls his friends. His people are going to be around him. And it's interesting because Jesus chose a bunch of misfits. 
He did not choose the premier people in his culture. He did not choose the beautiful people and the, and the people who were in positions of power to walk alongside with him. Jesus chose a bunch of mitzvahs. He chose a betrayer, a politically religious fanatic, that Simon. He chose guys who fish. He chose a priest who was a dropout and who cheats his own people. And he chose a guy named Thaddeus. I mean, epic fail right there. <laughs> Jesus chooses these people around him. And you think, wait, wait, if Jesus had only heard Andy Stanley... If Jesus had only heard, hey, Jesus, your friends determine the direction and quality of your life. If you had grabbed a hold of that idea, Jesus, then maybe the direction of your life might not have been to be crucified. Maybe if he had heard Andy Stanley, he could have changed the direction of his life. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And Jesus was the influencing factor among those whom he chosen. He didn't choose them simply to be his support network. He chose them to unleash to them the work of the kingdom of God following his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Listen, at first choice, you look at what Jesus did, you might think his draft choices were a mistake. You might think that Jesus made some bad hires. And maybe if you manage people in this room, maybe you're thinking, well, hey, I've made some of those bad hires. And maybe you say, like, if I, they look great at first, but then as time went on, you're like, it wasn't necessarily the best choice for that role. Maybe you were in that position as well. But Jesus, I want you to understand, comes out of this season of formation, and Jesus is the secret weapon to influence the lives of these ordinary people. What do I mean? Number one in your outline, what is the job of the Bible? You say, what in the world? Why, why the Bible? Why, why do we do it? What is the job of the Bible? To equip you for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's us, right, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what's the role of the Bible? Through teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that it is to equip you and I for every good work. And here's a picture I want you to catch. Jesus chooses these guys around him, and he wants to equip them for every good work. But he knows that what they bring to the table just doesn't matter. That what they bring to the table doesn't matter because it's what he's bringing to the table in this context. Jesus chooses around him people who will walk with him. And among them, he chooses three who will be particularly best friends with. And those are ones who continue to go on and change the world. But he had three, and then he had 12, and then there was many other disciples who followed him in different kind of circles from there. But what I want you to realize is Jesus was the secret weapon. Why? Because Jesus is the Word of God. Remember I asked, what's the purpose of God's Word? What's the purpose of the Bible? It's to equip you and me for every good work. Well, guess what? Jesus is the Word. The Word become flesh. John in his gospel tells us in John 1, 1 through 3, he says, in the beginning was the word. By the way, is that capitalized? Yes, it's a personal. He's referring to it as Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was Jesus, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's saying from the very beginning, the word of God, Jesus became flesh, and then he goes on to tell the entire gospel of the book of John, which reveals that Jesus is God become flesh. He is the word 
sent to equip those for every good work. All truth was spoken through him as God before he became flesh and before he called disciples. And once he called them, his word was the work of preparing them for the works of service. This is good news for us because the word makes heroes out of zeros. That's what it does in your life and my life. God's word takes a unique path that it works in us and that information, when we apply it, leads towards transformation. The word of God prepares us to do the work of God as a son or a daughter of the most high God. He says, uh, Paul does to Timothy, he says that all scriptures God breathed, it's useful for four things. He says this, teaching. Then he says rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But what I want you to know is that information is found in teaching. But the other three are formative. So the first one, teaching, is informative. The next three are how we apply what we've learned. So if God's saying God's word is useful, and here's four examples of ways it's useful, he's saying one of them is information, but three others are application. And I want you to understand that information plus application equals transformation. And some of us in this room, you want more information about God and about God's word. But if you don't want to do it, you're not going to see the transformation in your life. And this is where other people come along and come alongside us and are helpful because when you and I circle up with other people, it's then that we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And we need to realize that no one who follows Christ matures alone. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus got off to a solitary place. Yes, Jesus got off to be with who? With God. You and I are to have time alone with the Lord. That we're, again, if you get alone with God and have time in his word, are you alone? Not really. Because you've got the spirit of the living God there as your teacher, your counselor, your guide. He's opening your eyes. He's illuminating the scriptures to you. You are retreating to be with God. See what happens if you and I get alone and we just get alone with our own thoughts, and we just get introspective and self-reflective too much, it rarely leads us down a good path. You get consumed in your own head, and you get consumed internally, and what happens there is that can cause a lot of turmoil. What we need to do is escape to be with Jesus. Because no one matures alone. And then Jesus' model was, not only that, but you want to get together with other like-minded people. That you're intended not to be a wildebeest who runs off on his own, but you're to be part of a herd. You're to circle up with others. The late Eugene Peterson said this. He said, impatient shortcuts land us in the dead ends of immaturity. In fact, the impatience with which we seek to achieve spiritual maturity is implicit evidence of our immaturity. Say, I, I want to grow so bad. I want to grow so fast. And so you're fervent to want to grow into spiritual maturity and you're trying to have, have it happen quick. And sometimes God just slows us down and says, listen, whoa, whoa, time out. There's plenty of work out there that I want you to do that I've prepared in advance for you to do, but I need to prepare you. And the place that I prepared you is in my word. You need time here before you need to make a huge impact out there. You need to Take a dip here before you make a splash out there. That's what God is saying to us. We try to change our behavior and make things happen without the necessary attention to the resistance in us. See, a lot of times God's going to, through his word, deal with our stinking thinking. 
our self-thoughts, our self-talk that downgrades our identity, our time where we just have impressions about people and we've got prejudices or we've got ideas or we have opinions and God has to wear down the independence of our opinions and the independence of our thoughts and the prejudices that we would have on the inside and the preferences we have on the outside. And God's got to wear down all that stuff. And I, I got to tell you, I heard a lot about performing as a believer when I was growing up, but rarely did I hear much about God changing my attitude and changing the thoughts and the motivations of my heart. God doesn't want us to be a human performer, a human doing. He wants us to be a human being. And God takes human beings and prepares work that he's prepared in advance for them to do. So the being comes first and then the doing comes afterwards. Interestingly, Jesus spent the majority of his time training people on the attitude and matters of the heart. They were already pretty good at performance in a Jewish religious society. They had their rules, they had their do's and don'ts. Jesus came along to capture the heart. And that's where he spent the majority of his time, and I think that's where he spends the majority of time with us. So you and I, we need community to help change our thinking and coach us into the word and to overcome obstacles. Then lasting growth will flourish. On your outline, you've got a statement that says, what is the job of the community and the church? And the answer is to stir up one another to love and to good works. We're to stir each other up. I don't know if you know it, but like when you're trying to control your kids and they're stirring each other's up, that's not a good thing because you kind of lose control. But in God's economy, that's a great thing, that he wants his people to get together. And when they're together, he wants to stir them up and have each other stir themselves up. What? To do bad stuff? No, stir themselves up to love and to good works. Some of you hang around friends who stir you up, and it changes the direction and quality of your life. And God wants you to get together with those who will stir you up toward love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, it's the day of the Lord's return approaching. Next question, what is the job of the pastors and the teachers? And the answer is to do all the work. No, it's not. What's the job of the pastors and the teachers? The job of the pastors and the teachers is to equip you for good works of service. We want to happen in your life all the good things that God wants to do in you. We want everything that God wants to accomplish through you to be accomplished. We want to come alongside and to equip and to encourage and to cheer and to unleash and to activate you to do all that God intends to do in and through you. That's what he wants the church to be. That was Jesus' intent with the 12. And though Judas betrayed him, the early church replaced Judas's role, saying, we've got to choose one of the others and let the Holy Spirit lead us as we choose one so that these 12 are the ones that God intends to change the world. And we have never looked back. The reason you and I are in this room is because of those 12. Because they got together and God's Holy Spirit stirred them up and God was allowed to do all that he wanted to do and accomplish in and through them as they became obedient to him and many of them obedient unto death. And some, what kind of death? Death on a cross like their Lord. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, So Christ gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're to stir each other up. God's intent is for you to build up others in the body, for you as the body to be built up, for you to do all that God wants to do in and through you, for, for God to activate you to do the changes in the relationships and the world that he wants to accomplish through you. And doing that together as the body, we are built up. So the job of the word, the job of pastors and teachers, and the job of Christians gathering in community is all the same job. I don't know if you've caught that so far. So the job of the Word of God, the job of pastors and teachers, and the job of people gathering together in circle groups is all the same job. What's the job? To equip us for good works of service. See, what happens to a mature believer when they start discipling a new believer? You know how much joy that is for a mature believer? Because somewhere along the line, we just forgotten what it was like to be fresh and new. We just forgot what it was like to pray a prayer that was so brutally authentic and kind of just not even put together well, and how refreshing that is. Because you try to put together maybe a better prayer, you try to like think things through in a certain way, or you've just gotten caught up in all your Christianese. And what God wants to do, when you start discipling somebody who's newer to the faith, you start to wag. You start to get all excited. And you're like, oh, this is so awesome. Like, God, you're doing in and through me because why? You're investing in someone else. Here's what I see in a lot of churches. And here's what I want to warn against in our church. I want to warn against you just hanging around with other believers that you think are as or more mature than you. Do you see where I'm going with this? If you and I just hang around with people who we perceive to be very mature in the faith and as mature as we are, then guess what? We stagnate together. Something happens when mature believers get together and they're all about the information and they start to get away from the application. They stop stirring one another up. They stop investing in the lives of the next generation. They stagnate together, all of them. So what happens? You look at a mature group of believers who don't ever invest in other people, and you'll watch a mature group of believers talk about impacting the next generation for the Lord, but they never do it. They talk about, oh, if God would only like grab a hold of people and change them, but they're not ever a part of it, and they're slowly growing bored in the faith together. I want to warn you against that. I want to say, listen, some of you in this room, you're of the age where you think you paid your dues. Let me tell you, you look at a guy like Bill Tam who's discipling young men right now, and Bill is uh, older than I am, but I watch him investing in the lives of people, and there are a few people I know in this church who have as much joy as Bill Tam. You look at the people who come and serve among the least of these, those who serve at a respite night. And you're talking about people that, that you know and I know and they come and they're like, I'm going to serve at a respite night, but I'm going to serve with people. I don't, I'm not even trained to work with special needs people, but I'm going to serve with people who just have these conditions that I can't fathom. And these, ch these families that have challenges that I can't fathom, but they come and they serve and they walk away from that night. And they have more joy 
than the mature believers sitting around themselves going like, I wish God would just change our country. I wish God would just change our next generation. You're watching them change the next generation. You're a part of it. Let me tell you, if you're that mature believer, what does God want you to do? Just disciple other people to be just like you? So now he wants two or three of you? No. God wants us to get together and circle up so that we stir one another on toward love and good deeds and all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. So leaders are a gift of Christ to his church. And I got to tell you, I am so thankful for the pastors and the teachers and the leaders and the discipleship leaders who invested in me. I, mean, I remember back, Mike and I were in high school and we're in, a, we're in a small group in my bedroom at my house with other guys. And our youth pastor would come and another time a youth leader, they, they would come and they would invest in us and train us up as young men how to let God do all that he wants to do in us and then through us. And I'll tell you what, that we look back at those days with just amazing fondness. I'm so thankful for the people who would invest in me. And it's interesting, God didn't just choose one great pastor to invest in me or in you. God brings at the right time, the right moment, the right believers around you. And sometimes people move away and you're like, Lord, who's going to? And God's like, I got somebody lined up. But just don't isolate. Because I've got that next person who's going to spur you on toward love and to good deeds. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect or every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So picture here's Christ. Picture a body. Christ is the head. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What's the intent of God as he builds his church? That he's the head, but he supports everybody else as we support one another. And we're connected to one another. Like ligaments are connected to bone. And that uh, a circulatory system and a nervous system. That all those things work together to do the work of the body. That's what God intends his church to be. I mean, literally, what would have happened if the disciples of Jesus just kept the good news about Jesus to themselves? Wow. Whew. Least we know who he is. We know he's the son of God. That's good. Whew, let's just make sure we tell our immediate family, but nobody else. I got to tell you, that kind of thinking was the furthest thought from their mind. They were waiting for God's Holy Spirit to unleash them, to do all that God wanted to do in and through them. And I want you to wait for God's Holy Spirit to unleash you, to do all that God wants to do in and through you, but you participate as you are in his word, as you circle up with one another. So when I say it's our intent to not just be a church of rows, but a church of circles, I'm not just giving you an ideal. I'm saying it's essential if we're going to be the people that God called us to be, if we're going to be stirred up, the only way we're going to get stirred up is by getting together with other believers and seeing God do all that he wants to do in and through us to change the world. So we celebrate and serve. I mean, there's nothing more fun than serving God's kingdom with people that you love. So, I mean, honestly, we just say this. We, we take our mission very seriously, but we do not take ourselves too seriously. If you're a very, very, very serious person, Sometimes you're going to rob the joy that God wants to do in you. And I'm telling you, when you serve with other people, man, you just got joy. It's so good. You just go and you go, there's a reason I need to be here today. And it's not just to get more information. 
It's to receive information, to build up, that the name of Christ be elevated, and that I have some meaningful task I need to be here today to do. If I'm not here to do it, then the body is lacking. It's not connected in some way. So bring your giftedness, bring your best, bring your joy, bring the things that make you sad, mad, and glad, and let's serve our community and the world and each other as the church of Jesus Christ. Cal Berkeley, there's a philosopher named Samuel Scheffler who wrote a book called Death in the Afterlife. This is in Oxford University Press, 2013. By the way, Scheffler, who doesn't believe in an afterlife, wrote a book called Death in the Afterlife. But he argues, meaning in life comes through affecting future lives on earth. I think he gets one thing really right. That meaning in life comes from affecting future lives on earth. Who are the afterlife lives that you're affecting in this temporary life on earth? Paul argues that meaning in life comes through affecting present lives for God's glory right now in this life and in the future heavenly reward. So number four in your outline, what is the job of our good work? So that others will give glory to our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus himself said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify you. No, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that's it. We're not doing good works to receive glory for self. We want to unleash and stir each other up to let God do all he wants to do in and through you to the glory of God the Father in heaven. But in order to do that, we got to humble ourselves and we need community. Again, your friends determine the direction and quality of your life. And some of you are discovering right now as you circle up that you're finding out that, man, just circling up can cause a massive difference than just simply attending church. Then it really quickens you to get in your Bible. Their opinion and their insight sharpen you and your opinion and insight sharpen them. And God is doing good things as you stir each other up. Listen, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, maybe in this room, you've never taken that first step to circle up yourself with Jesus. He's calling you, but you've never made a decision to step toward him. And maybe today is that day. You're like, I've been coming to church. I've been listening to these things, but I need to say yes to Jesus. And if that's you today, then right where you're seated, will you pray a prayer like this? Just pray, Jesus, today I say yes to your call. That I was wandering through life and you called me and God, I don't know what that all looks like or what it all holds, but I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, and that you rose to new life, that you're God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Wash me as white as snow, because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.